grateful for today, grateful for this morning, and we know that many churches uh, are not meeting today, and so you've given us a chance here to meet face-to-face, and uh, we, it's a privilege that we don't take for granted, and so we thank you for that. Um, I just pray that you'll bless uh, your word today as it goes out. Um, I pray people will be edified, uh, healed, uh, saved. And you promise in your word that where it goes out, it does not return empty or void. And so we claim that promise this morning as we look into your word in the Sunday school hour and in the the main service that follows. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. If you could uh, take your Bibles and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to thank Greg Luttrell for filling in last week. And that's kind of painful because once you figure out he's a really good teacher, then he's leaving. So, ooh, that hurts. He's leaving because of his job. He's not leaving because we we kicked him out or anything. So we in Sunday school have been dealing, continuing to deal with the subject of the rapture. We have examined what the rapture is, 10 truths about it. And then, as you probably know, there's a debate about the timing of the rapture. So we gave seven proofs for the top view, uh, pre-tribulationalism. We believe the rapture will take place before the tribulation period. And at that point, I was sort of tempted to conclude the study, but there's so much more to talk about. So we have this section here called Strengthening the Case, where we went to other passages that speak of the rapture that build on, not subtract, but build on what we've been speaking of. And people say, well, did Jesus ever mention the rapture? And he did, two places. John 14, one through four, spent a lot of time looking at that. And then from his present position at the Father's right hand, uh, Jesus spoke to the church at Philadelphia and spoke of the rapture a second time in Revelation three, verse 10. And we dealt with that. So what we're going to do this morning is I just want to show you the structure of 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. Because when you see the whole picture, I think it's almost undeniable that A, there is a rapture coming, and B, it's pre-tribulational. And you don't really get it just by studying one chapter. You've got to look at both chapters in harmony with each other. Because the Holy Spirit did not put that chapter division there. See where it says chapter 5? The Holy Spirit didn't write that. That's man attempting to organize the Bible. And a lot of times the chapter divisions are very helpful. But other times they're confusing because they cause us to bifurcate one body of material from a prior body of material. And we don't get the whole picture. So I just want to, what I'm going to do today is just talk you through 
how 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 just naturally fit together. And then I'll backtrack at the end and show you how this proves, I think, almost unmistakably, the pre-tribulational rapture. So let's go ahead and start with chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We won't say much here because we've dealt with this passage in depth already. But Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren about those who have fallen asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus uh, died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and see our critics say you guys believe in a secret rapture. Hmm, why does it say shout? Doesn't seem very secretive to me. But anyway, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, be scared out of your minds because of this. Whoops, doesn't say that. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So that paragraph, you know, we've gone through and you're probably familiar with that. But one of the great insights you pick up here at Sugarland Bible Church is that chapter 4 is followed by chapter 5. Isn't that heavy? I mean, this is deep theology here. And as I mentioned before, the chapter division is artificial. Um, the a man that did these chapter divisions in the 1600s was a man named Stephen Langton, who allegedly put all of these chapter divisions together for us um, on a very bumpy carriage ride across a vast terrain so I don't know maybe sometimes the road got a little too bumpy for him and he may have you know inadvertently put a chapter division that wasn't supposed to be there but the fact is it's just his attempt to categorize things so for something like this just take the chapter division and put it out of your mind because Paul doesn't say okay now we're into chapter five that's a Stephen Langton thing That's not a Paul the Apostle thing. So Paul moves right from chapter 4, talking about the rapture, into chapter 5, verse 1. And he says, now as to the times and the epochs. The Greek there is the kairos, seasons, and the chronos, where we get the word chronology, times. That's what's translated as to the times and the epochs. To the kairos and the chronos, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Now, the first thing you see here is what starts what we call chapter 5 is an expression in Greek called a peri-day construction. And that's what it looks like in Greek, and it's translated as now concerning. When Paul uses the word now concerning, he's switching topics. He's not going to some remote topic 
you know, let's talk about the price of tea in China kind of thing. It's a topic still related to the end times, but it's a different topic than what he was dealing with in the prior chapter. It's a related topic, but at the same time, it's still a different topic. And that's what he means by this expression, now. Some of your translations may say, but now, now concerning. And I like to quote this scholar, Edmund Hebert, on the Thessalonian epistles. He says, the connective particle translated but is again transitional. It indicates that a new subject is being introduced. The vast majority of our modern versions render it but, thus suggesting a contrasting thought is being introduced. Then the contrast seems to be between the certainty of Christ's coming as set forth in the previous section and the uncertainty as to its time. While some interpreters hold that this paragraph is simply a continuation of the subject in chapter 4, it seems clear that a new aspect of the coming of Christ is now being considered. Thus the particle day or peri-day is best taken as an adversative, not as an adversative but as a transitional and may be rendered now. So as Paul is receiving this information from the Lord about the rapture, he now goes into a related subject, a different subject, but a related subject concerning the timing of the rapture. Because the Thessalonians, after hearing about the rapture, would want to know when is this going to occur. And so Paul says, I now have some comments concerning the timing of the rapture relative to the coming judgment that's about to come on the earth known as the seven-year tribulation period. And that's why Paul says, now concerning the times and the epics, the kairos and the chronos. So they're going to want to know, when is this going to happen? Is this March the 3rd? Is this going to happen? Is it October 5th? And you'll notice that Paul, as he begins to deal with this subject, says, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So if you're worried about when is it going to happen next month, next year, next decade, Paul says you don't even need to worry about that. You don't have to worry about the kairos and the chronos. Why? Because there's coming a time period on the earth, the character of which has nothing to do with you as a Christian. As Paul begins to describe the subsequent time period that's coming, he says the character of that time period has nothing to do with you because it's a time of darkness that's coming and you're a child of light. And he continues on here uh, in verse 2 and he begins to talk about this coming time period that will follow the rapture. He says, you yourselves know full well. Now, Paul was only in Thessalonica six months to a year before he was forced out into Corinth on his second missionary journey. And it's from Corinth around A.D. 51. He writes the two Thessalonian letters to the baby church at Thessalonica in a back-to-back -back fashion. So when he was with them for six months to a year, he'd already taught them prophecy. 
And I find that very interesting because a lot of churches won't teach prophecy because they think it confuses people, it divides people. And they will say things like, you know, don't expose a new Christian to this kind of subject matter because it's going to scare the living daylights out of them. Let's get them into kind of more of a, you know, a controlled environment, you know, where we can give them some kind of book of the week and they can kind of work through that book and we can kind of edit out anything in the Bible that might be a problem to them. That's sort of the mindset of 21st century evangelical Christianity. You'll notice that Paul never bought into that mindset. He boldly and clearly talked about all realm of doctrine to new Christians including prophecy. So he starts talking about the day of the Lord. And the way he phrases this is they already knew about the day of the Lord. So he's just kind of rehearsing information that they already knew. He says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now what is the day of the Lord? Well, in the main service, we're starting the book of Genesis, so we're going to get familiar with the days, creation days, pretty quickly. And the creation days is the first time in the Bible that you find the expression day. And there are seven days, six of which God created the heavens and the earth. And this is what it says basically after every single day. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning first day. So you'll notice that when God created a day, there was a time of evening or night or blackness or darkness. And then came forth the morning star now, the morning star is the first star that you see as things are moving from nighttime to daytime. And isn't it interesting that Jesus calls himself in Revelation 22, the what? The morning star. So as humanity is going to be moving from darkness into the light of the kingdom, it will be preceded by the coming of Christ. So you'll notice that a day has evening, and then it has morning. It has darkness followed by light. And that's what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord is the same thing. It's a time of darkness that's coming to planet Earth. And that time of darkness is going to be followed by the light of the kingdom. So we're living in a time period now where the day of the Lord hasn't, has not yet started. But Paul is very clear, there's coming this time of darkness on planet Earth, the seven-year tribulation period, and it's going to be followed by the light of the kingdom. And the kingdom will be preceded by the personal return of Jesus to the Earth, the morning star. So John Walvoord kind of summarizes the day of the Lord concept as follows. He says, a study of numerous Old Testament references to the day of the Lord and the day, as it is sometimes called, should make clear to anyone who respects the details of prophecy that the designation denotes an exclusive time of judgment on the world. Now, Paul is not the first to use the expression day of the Lord. Walvoord, you'll notice here, quotes a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies 
Among the texts are, and look at all these passages he's got, passages from Isaiah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah. And he says this, based on Old Testament revelation, the day of the Lord is a time of judgment culminating in the second coming of Christ and followed by a time of special divine blessing to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. So that's what the day of the Lord is. Darkness, tribulation period, followed by the light of the kingdom. You can see that motif as early as Genesis 1. And if you were to go through all of these passages that he's quoting here or referencing, you would see the exact same concept. So no doubt that's what Paul means when he starts talking to the Thessalonians about the day of the Lord. Something that they knew full well. Now, 1 Thessalonians is followed by what? Second, man, you guys are good. Second Thessalonians, and in Second Thessalonians 2, Paul again uses the expression, the day of the Lord. And it's in Second Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 12, that he talks about things related to the day of the Lord. Five things. And all five of those things relate to the seven-year tribulation period when you study them out right down to what's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation period concerning the Antichrist desecrating the rebuilt Jewish temple. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a, there's a very logical basis for assuming that the day of the Lord is started by the seven-year tribulation period. That's the Old Testament understanding, and that's Paul's understanding as shown in his second letter. So this is a time of distress for Jacob. Jacob's name in the book of Genesis was changed to what? Israel. Now, are you Jacob? You're not Jacob. Uh, you're not Israel either. So that starts to be a hint that you couldn't be in this time period because the designation Jacob or Israel is never applied to the New Testament church. Jacob or Israel will go into it and he will be saved out of it. In other words, he will be converted through it. It's a time period that we call the 70th week of Daniel. Go back to our Daniel studies and you'll see data on that. Daniel 9 verse 27. It's a time period when God is going to pour out on this earth the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the golden bowl of wrath judgments. And then that seven-year tribulation period is then followed by the morning star which is the first star that appears to let you know that we're transitioning from light, uh, darkness into light. So Jesus is going to come back at the end of that seven-year tribulation period. His, his feet are literally going to touch planet Earth. His feet will be on this Earth just as literally as they were 2,000 years ago. Except this time he's coming back not to die for the sins of the world. He's coming back to establish his kingdom. And then this time of darkness that humanity has been in will be followed by the light, the glorious kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, which will last for a thousand years. And then that kingdom will give way to the eternal state, which is even better, 
because uh, it will last forever. And so when Paul uses that expression, the, the concept of the day of the Lord, that's what he's talking about. Now, back to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, when I was a very new Christian, uh, my wife and I... Uh, who were the same age, although we didn't know each other, but we were kind of in the same youth groups. Um, we were all exposed to this uh, video series called the Thief in the Night series. Anybody seen that? Uh, it's not the most uh, A-plus budget operation. Um, but it was interesting. I mean, it got us thinking about the end times as young people. Uh, but they, they called it the Thief in the Night series because it was the idea that the rapture is a thief in the night. Well, let me just ask you a simple question. When a thief breaks into your house in the middle of the night, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That will be a bad thing. Is the rapture a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. So therefore, I do not think that thief in the night language ever applies to the rapture. It's called a thief in the night because as a thief breaks into one's house in the middle of the night, you know, a thief doesn't tell you they're coming. You know, you don't get a text from a thief saying, okay, 3.30 a.m., I'm going to be there kind of thing. It's something that catches you off guard. And the coming time of darkness that's coming upon the earth is called the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night because that's what it's going to be like for unbelievers that don't know God and have pushed God completely out of their thinking. And they don't even think they're accountable to God. And so consequently, this time period is going to come upon them as they're not going to have their prophecy charts out, okay? They're not going to even have Bibles. And this time period is going to come upon them so fast, it's going to be just like a thief breaking into one's house in the middle of the night. So Paul says, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Thomas Ice, the director of the pre-trib study group, says the thief idea in relation to a, to a coming of Christ is used seven times in the New Testament. He's got all the references there. The thief in the night imagery never applies to the rapture. Such language usually is descriptive of unbelievers and God's wrath of judgment related to the tribulation or second coming. The picture painted by a thief in the night shows it is the unbeliever who is caught off guard since he never really believes God is actually going to judge in history. The unbeliever thinks he has gotten away with ignoring God all his life. Therefore, the Lord is a non-factor, he thinks. The point of the Bible is, boy, is he in for a big surprise one day. Just like an individual who is robbed by a thief, when one is robbed, it is an event that disrupts the normal status of coming uh, home every day in the past to a house that is as it should be. Like the slothful student, wow, he's really heaping on the guilt here. Like the slothful student who is never ready for the exam and therefore caught off guard when it actually comes, so the unbeliever will never be ready since he either does not believe in God at all or does not believe that God will, will ever hold him accountable. So this is what Paul is explaining here about this day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night. 
And as this time period comes, what is the world saying? Watch this now. While they, now you you need to underline that if you're an underliner. Because he's not saying we anymore. Or you. He's not using first person, second person. He just switched to the third person. More on that in a second. While they are saying what? Peace and homeland security. No, it doesn't say that, but close. While they are saying peace and safety. So as this time period is coming, which is going to totally catch them off guard, the chorus of the world at that point in time will be peace and safety. Now, why is the world saying peace and safety at that time? You have to throw in a few other passages. One is Daniel 9, verse 27, which speaks of a covenant that the Antichrist will enter into with unbelieving Israel. That's what Daniel 9, 27, uh, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's the Antichrist entering into a peace treaty with unbelieving Israel, bringing peace to that region of the world. The deal of the century. The real estate deal of the century is pulled off by the Antichrist. And a part of the world that has known nothing but turmoil is fixed through the art of the deal in a nanosecond. By the way, I'm not implying anybody is the Antichrist when I say that. I'm just trying to show you that the mindset of our world is already working this way. I mean, we're looking for anybody to fix this problem. Because if you can fix that problem, you can fix anything. Because it is the ultimate real estate deal. And there's coming this one, the rider on the white horse. He has a bow. Revelation 6, 1 and 2. He brings peace to the world when the first seal judgment is opened. And I know that because when the second seal judgment is opened, it says peace was taken from the earth. So you can't take peace from the earth unless it's first established on the earth. So this is a false peace. This is a pseudo peace. And we know it's false because it doesn't last. When Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, the book of Isaiah calls it an everlasting righteousness and peace. That's the true peace. But this uh, Antichrist brings in a false peace at this time. And that's why when you study Ezekiel 38 and 39 and speaks of the, the, the invading armies that will come against Israel, I believe as the second seal judgment is being opened, and I have a whole book on that. Uh, if you want one, just see me afterwards Um, The elders bought some for you, um, if you're interested in one, and we'll get that to you. Um, But when this invasion happens, it indicates that Israel is living in unwalled villages. She's not living in unwalled villages right now, I can guarantee you that, because the deal of the century hasn't been pulled off yet. But she'll be living in unwalled villages, Ezekiel 38, 8, and 11, And also she'll be living in security. She'll be living at rest. 
And the only time that's ever made any sense to me for that invasion is post-Antichrist's peace treaty with unbelieving Israel. When the nation of Israel enters into that peace treaty with the Antichrist, the prophet Isaiah says, in Isaiah 28 verse 15 and verse 18, she has just made a covenant with hell. She has just made a covenant with Sheol herself because she's just entered into the deal of the century with the Antichrist. Who will betray Israel three and a half years later by desecrating the Jewish uh, temple? So she's made a deal with the devil, literally. And yet, this is the instrument through which Israel will be brought to faith because before we look up, what does God have to do to us? He's got to knock us down. Great piece of theology given to me by the man that led me to Christ in 1983. He said God knocks us down, so we what? Look up. Has that happened in anybody's life? Certainly happened in my life. Um, And that's going to happen big time. All in caps, big time, exclamation point for the nation of Israel because she's made a treaty with the satanically energized Antichrist who is actually going to betray Israel three and a half years later. And yet that process is necessary to empty Israel of her pride. So this is why the world, when these things happen, they're all crying out peace and safety. Paul goes on. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction comes upon them suddenly like labor pains and upon a woman with child. So, as all women who have gone through the pregnancy process know, when the birth pangs start, they increase in intensity and frequency. And my wife says to me when we were living in Dallas, okay, it's time to go to the hospital. And I didn't say, um, well, they're having a sale on the coffee that I'm interested in at Starbucks. Can we kind of cruise there, through there first? No, this baby is coming and it's coming fast and it's a process which is irreversible. That's what is going to overtake the world as a thief in the night. The moment they think they've got the world figured out and they've got their Messiah is the moment the birth pangs accelerate to the point where they can't be reversed. That's the imagery that's used. And Paul says this, they will not escape. Now when you look at that last phrase in Greek, I've got it in brackets there, there's a double negation. And in Greek, when you have a double negation, it's saying absolutely, 100%, no way. The process is irreversible. Escaping the process at that point is 100% off the table. It's the strongest negation you could ever have in the Greek language. Once the process starts, the world system is never, 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 never getting out of it. No way. Spanish translation, no way, Jose. They will not escape. The process of the birth pangs has started, and the world is stuck, foolishly thinking that the Antichrist was their guy, and they're plunged into this time period. 
Paul goes on there in verses 4 and 5, and he says, but you brethren, now look that, look at that, my goodness, he just switched from they back to who? You. How interesting. He's now dealing with the Thessalonians, but you brethren are not in darkness that that day what day? The day he just got finished talking about. That that day would overtake you like a thief in the night. Well, now, why would he say that? Because it's the unbelievers that are caught off by that day. Because they don't know God. But you're different. For you are all sons of light. And sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So how could we be in that time period when we're sons of light and the whole time period is characterized by pitch black uh, darkness? John Walford writes, Paul stated that the day of the Lord will not overtake the Thessalonians as a thief. Why does an event coming as a thief come unexpectedly upon the world but with proper expectation for believers, Paul explained this in verses 4 and 5, which we just quoted. But you brothers are not in darkness, you are all sons of light, sons of the day. We do not belong to the light, the night, or to the darkness. Close quote, Walverd continues, here is a crucial point in Paul's explanation. The thief is coming, is going to come in the night... But the believers are declared not to belong to the night or the darkness. The implication is quite clear that believers are in a different time reference. That is, they belong to the day that precedes the darkness. So there's coming a time period of darkness followed by the kingdom. How could the church, which is characterized by light, have anything to do with that time period of darkness. That's Walverd's point. More on that in just a minute. And Paul, like a very good preacher, gives, oh, I don't know, five or so points of application to the Thessalonians based on what he just said. And he does that in verses 6 through 11. In other words, great information, Paul, on Sunday. How does this affect the way I live on Monday? So here come the application or applications. Number one, verse 6, be sober. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So, um, when we're kind of walking around in life and we're not thinking about God as Christians, and we as Christians can, can get that way, you know, we get so caught up in daily activity that God is sort of a footnote in our lives or an afterthought. Paul is saying you're living like an unbeliever when you do that. Because it's the unbelievers that are going to be caught off guard by this as a thief in the night. That's not who you are. So let your practice catch up with your position. You ought, you ought to be sober spiritually. You ought to be thinking about the things of God. You ought, you ought to be aware of your environment and your circumstances. So, and he doesn't hold that uh, out as a threat to them. 
gee, if you're not living like that, then you're going to go into the tribulation period. There's a lot of wackos out there today teaching that kind of stuff. That's called partial rapturism, which we'll be dealing with in our rapture study at some point. You know, only the godly Christians are taken. The ungodly Christians are left behind. And I notice that everyone who teaches that always assumes that they're going to be in the group taken. Uh, that's just an interesting observation I make. But Paul's first point of application is be sober. You know, be alert. Be prayerful. Uh, be in the Word. Don't, don't let the Bible be a nice little piece of decor on your table at home. Pull it out. Lead your fam- if, you're, if you're the leader of your family, lead your family in uh, devotions and Bible study and prayer. Because the truth of the matter is, people say, well, gee, Andy, how is your church going? And I always say, well, which one? Because I have a church here with y'all, but I have my own church in my house also. And I've got two members of my congregation. Whether they want to be members or not, they're stuck with me. And we do Bible study, we do prayer, and I'm finding, you know, a lot of Christian homes. I thought that was normal in Christianity. I'm finding a lot of Christian homes don't do that. So they're just kind of, you know, adopting the world's philosophy. Let the TV, you know, babysit the kids. And we're, we're just not acting like we're supposed to act as children of light. We're not being sober. We're not being alert. So that's the first point of application. Second point of application is... Don't live like the children of night, because that's not who you are. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. So when we're just encaptured by the world system and not living according to it, we're acting just like unbelievers, and that's not who we are. That's not our position. That's not our character. I wrote down uh, as a cross-reference 1 Peter 4, verse 3, where Peter says, For the time already is past sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So, you know, when I was in college, uh, you have friends that say, come on out, let's go club hopping, let's go out and do this, let's go out and do that. And then you say to yourself, well, why would I want to do that? That's exactly what unbelievers do. I mean, unbelievers do that all the time. Why why would I, as a Christian, want to do something that's so out of character with what God has declared about me the moment I trusted in Christ. So application number two, don't act like the children of night. Application number three, armor up. Verse eight, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. My goodness, what chapter of the Bible does that remind you of? That sure reminds me of the full armor of God chapter that Paul hadn't even written yet in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. So armor up. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 13 says, take up the what armor of God? 
90% of the armor of God. No. If I go out with 90% on, hey, helmet's on, but I don't have the breastplate of righteousness on. Am I okay? Well, only if you want to die. I mean, you've got to put on the full armor of God. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and have, having done everything to stand firm. So application number three is armor up because we're living, the time of darkness hasn't started yet, but it's coming. And the world that we're living in is being set up for that time of darkness. And so we're living on hostile territory still. And so we need to put on the full armor of God. We're on defense. We're not on offense. We're not saying, okay, let's have a prayer meeting and let's uh, pray down the territorial spirit over Houston to stop abortion. Because um, I know of churches that do that. There's one prominent pastor that was doing that in the 1980s over Los Angeles. And I don't think he's been very successful when you look at the state of Los Angeles today. Particularly when that city was once called the City of the Angels. Uh, I think it, today would be the Los Fallen Angels, if anything. So we're not on the, in the sense that we're bringing in the kingdom. We're told we can't do that because this time of darkness is coming. But we're to live on defense. That's why we're called ambassadors. An ambassador is someone who represents American values on Iranian soil. The ambassador is not there to make Iran into America. The ambassador is there to represent American values where they're not known. See, that's what an ambassador is. That's why Paul calls us ambassadors. So everywhere you go, you're representing the principles of light and the principles of the kingdom in a world that does not have the kingdom yet. In fact, not only does the world not have the kingdom, but the world is about to be plunged into a time of darkness that it has never known before, from which they cannot escape. And so we have this rare moment of time before that happens to represent godly values in the devil's world. So armor up. The next point of application is remember that you are not appointed unto wrath. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. Now why is that? Who paid for my wrath? Jesus did. Jesus' final words on the cross where it is finished. He didn't say it's 92% finished. You guys kick in the rest through pay, pray, and obey. That's Religion tells you that. Roman Catholicism, dare I say, will tell you that. That's not what your Bible says. Your Bible says it's paid for. You receive it as a gift. The wrath of God has been absorbed in your place. Christ's righteousness has been transferred to you at the point of faith. And so we are not destined for wrath. Now, if we're not destined for wrath, then how could I be in this time of darkness that's coming? which is an expression of divine wrath. Well, you know, wait a minute now, pastor. It really doesn't say wrath until later. So, what does that have to do with anything? The flood was wrath, wasn't it? Yet the flood story never uses the word wrath. Whether the word is there or not is an irrelevant discussion. 
the concept is there. And once you hit Revelation 6, Jesus is in heaven opening a seven-sealed scroll, causing all of these problems. The Antichrist comes because Jesus opens a seal. Then comes war. Then comes famine. Then comes death. By the way, how many people are killed when seal number four is opened up? 25%. How many people are killed in Revelation 9 during one of the trumpet judgments? I want to say it's trumpet number five or maybe number six. A third. So just do the math. You've got a pie divided in quarters. One quarter gone. Revelation 6. Revelation 9, three quarters remaining, a third gone, take out that quarter, and how many people are left on planet Earth? 50%. 50% of the world's population is wiped out by the time you get to Revelation 9. And Jesus is causing it. Now, people think COVID-19 is bad. Whew, you ain't seen nothing yet. What is it, 1% of the population or something like that? dies with COVID-19, everybody is terrified about that. You ain't seen nothing yet. This is 50% of the world's population caused by Jesus Christ himself. Because Jesus is in heaven opening the seven-sealed scroll. And that's why Paul, as he's rehearsing these things, is telling them, you're not going into that time period because that would put the blood-bought bride under the judgments of Jesus Christ himself. If that could happen in any sense, then the atonement of Jesus, where he died as our substitute, is a falsehood. So his point of application here is a reminder that we are not appointed unto wrath. Verse 11, the next, verse 10, excuse me, the next point of application is to live for Christ. Verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. So our goal as Christians is to live for Jesus Christ now. That doesn't make us more Christian, by the way. You can't get any more Christian than you already are. You got your 100% Christian when you trusted Christ. That's, that is a position that has been eternally decreed about you from the lips of Christ who cannot lie. That's who you are. You are a saint. Now you might feel like an ain't, but you're not an ain't. You're a saint because we live our lives not based on how we feel, but what the objective word of God says. So if that is true, and I receive that the moment I trust Christ, maybe my life at some point should start to mirror that reality. See that? That's what Paul is saying. And then he says in verse 11, next point and final point of application, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. And isn't it interesting that when Paul completes topics of this nature, he always gives words of comfort. That's how he completed his thoughts in the prior chapter. Therefore comfort one another with these words. 
So if your mind is propelled as a Christian into fear and anxiety on account of these things, then you need to restudy these things. Because these things are given to be a reality check for the Christian, but the whole thing is designed as a comfort for the Christian. Now, I don't know about you, but if that second view is true, I'm not very comforted. Because I have to go through 50% of it. If that third view from the top is true, then I'm not comforted because i got to go through all of it. If that final view at the bottom is true, then I'm not comforted either because I've got to go through three quarters of it. So... The point I'm getting at is when you start in 1 Thessalonians 4 and you read consistently, taking into account that the chapter division is artificial, although there is a change of subject going on, to me the whole chronology is laid out beautifully for pre-tribulationalism, which is the idea that the church will be taken to heaven before the tribulation even starts. How, how could the church be in it at all when it's the wrath of God and we're not appointed to wrath? How could the church be in it at all when it's a time of darkness that's going to overtake unbelievers and we're children of light? So I think what seals the deal for me on something like this is to just pay attention to the pronouns Paul uses frequently the first person, I or we or us. He uses the second person, you. And sometimes the you is plural. So if I was coming up with a Texas translation of the Bible, it would say y'all. It would go you, y'all. Maybe we'll come up with something like that one day. And he doesn't use third person, they, those, them, others, until he gets to the part where he's talking about the world being swept off guard as a woman in child labor being overtaken as a thief in the night. Now, look at this very carefully. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed so that you will not grieve. For if we believe that Christ died, verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain, verse 17, 1 Thessalonians 4, then we who are alive, uh, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And he keeps talking like this moving into the next chapter, the first couple of verses. Now as to the times in the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves. Then he gets to that tough stuff in verse 3 about peace and safety, coming as a thief in the night. And I'll come back to that in just a second. But once he gets past that verse, what does he go back to in verse 4? You, brethren, are not in darkness. This day will not overtake you like a thief in the night. For you are all sons of the light. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. And he keeps going like that through the five points of application that we just made. Let us not sleep. Let us be alert. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. 
God has not destined us for wrath, who died for us so that we, we will live together just as you are doing. You see how he keeps using first person, second person, sometimes singular, sometimes plural, over and over again. But did you see what he did there in verse 3? Verse 3 is the world saying peace and safety, labor pains that can't be stopped. Um, there's no way you'll get out of it. They will not escape. You see how he just switched the pronoun there in verse 3? He's used first person and second person in verses 1 and 2, not to mention the prior chapter. And in verses 4 through 11, all first person and second person. And then when he got to verse 3, he just did a switcheroo. While they, now he's not saying we, us, you anymore. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them, third person, suddenly. Like labor pains upon a woman caught with a child, and they will not escape. And when he alludes back to that verse, that's what he keeps doing. So then let us, verse 6, not sleep as others. Who, who would those others be? That would be the they or the them that are plunged into this time period. For those who are asleep, who are the those? That's the they that are plunged into this time period, not you. You see that? Well, gee, Andy, I mean, you're getting really technical and real specific about these things. I mean, you're like, it's like you're building doctrines on specific words and things. I mean, are you allowed to do that? Did not Jesus say, it is written, you not, shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And by the way, it's not just the words that are inspired. It's the smallest stroke of the pen making up the words that are inspired. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 18, For truly I say to you, heaven and earth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The Bible is inspired in its original manuscripts in the smallest strokes of the pen, which in Hebrew look like little apostrophes. That's how tiny they are. And those smallest strokes of the pen make up the letters. And the letters make up the what? The words. And the words make up the sentences. And the sentences make up the paragraphs. And the paragraphs make up the chapters. And the chapters make up the books. And the books make up the Bible. That's how God inspired his word. So the moment Jesus said, not the smallest stroke of a pen shall pass away, is the moment you have to start paying attention to every little nook and cranny of what God says. Because this is what we call verbal, plenary inspiration. Plenary, all of the Bible is inspired, verbal, right down to the words, right down to the smallest strokes of, the, of a pen. Because a lot of people would say, well, you're just micromanaging. I mean, all you're doing is observing the switch in pronouns from first person, second person, to third person. And what I'm saying is Jesus told me to do that. 
through these awesome statements that he gives concerning verbal plenary inspiration. So to summarize everything, and with this we'll stop, John Walverd says this, concerning the study of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Taken as a whole, what does he mean by that? Chapters 4 and 5 together. Taken as a whole, the pre-tribulation point of view, what is that? That's the view that before this time of darkness takes place, the church will be removed. Taken as a whole, the pre-tribulation point of view gives sense and meaning to 1 Thessalonians 5 and explains why this was introduced after the rapture. So Paul has talked about the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, and now they're wondering, well, when is this going to happen? That moves us into chapter 5, where he says of the kairos and chronos, times and the seasons, don't even worry about it. Don't, don't give it a moment's thought. Because your character is such that you could not be put into that time period. That's for they and them. In effect, Paul was saying that the time of the rapture cannot be determined any more than the time of the beginning of the day of the Lord. That's the problem with date setting. And every couple of months, somebody comes up with a date setting scheme. And I know that because they send me their mathematical calculations. You know, the fact of the matter is nobody knows. Nobody knows when the rapture is going to happen. It could happen today, though. I know that much. I don't know exactly when it's going to happen. And God doesn't want us to know. What he wants us to do is live like it could happen today. Don't live like a child of night. That's not even your destiny. Live like a child of the day. In effect, Paul was saying that the time of the rapture cannot be determined any more than the time of the beginning of the day of the Lord. Now watch this. But this is of no concern to believers. Why, why even wrap yourself up in something like that? This is of no concern to believers because our appointment, and you do have an appointment, by the way, and you can't break it, because our appointment is not to the wrath of the day of the Lord, he told us that in verse 5, but rather to salvation that is ours in Christ. So you're not going into this time period. It's, a, it's Just live according to your new identity is, what, is, is really what, rather than worrying about when it's going to happen, worry about, if you want to be worried about something, here's what you should be concerned about. Is my practice in daily life consistent with my position? That's, that's something to be concerned about. So the next time I'm with you, which will be next week, we'll be blowing the doors off this place because we'll be getting into heated controversy, screaming and yelling, protests, angry posts because we'll be dealing with 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. So anyway, just uh, I got to say something to make you want to come back. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's stop here and you guys have any, we have a few minutes for comments or questions.